Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. and welcome to episode 116 of the Criminology Podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. Mr. Morford, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm rested up. We took a week off and recharged the batteries and I'm ready to go. How about you? Yeah, no, it was nice to have a week off, um, you know, our first week off of the year. You need that, right? Every now and then. It's a lot of work. Everything that goes into putting out the podcast, it's a lot of work and you need to recharge the batteries for sure. They definitely don't want to burn out. We continue to see some great support on Patreon. So let's go ahead and give some shout outs. We had Donna Simmons, Donna Bashline, Wasp Factory, Brianne Linder, Emma Hunnisett, Todd Jonas, and Ben Smith. So we appreciate all that support very much. Yeah, it means a lot and it really goes a long way. And for anyone else that's considering supporting criminology on Patreon, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. Don't forget about Stitcher Premium. You can find all of our old episodes there, and they have a 30-day free trial, which makes it very easy. All right, Morph, are you ready to jump into this episode? Yeah, this is a big one. I'm ready for it. Yeah, this is a very interesting case. We're talking about the Tylenol murders in 1982, seven people in the Chicago area who took Tylenol capsules for various illnesses, collapsed into comas, and died within minutes. After it was determined that all had died from cyanide poisoning, detectives began the hunt for a sadistic killer. The murders changed the way that we take over-the-counter medications. And while one man remains a person of interest, this case is still unsolved nearly 38 years later. At 6.30 a.m. on September 29, 1982, 12-year-old Mary Kellerman was feeling ill and stayed home from school. She went into the bathroom on the second floor of her Elk Grove Village home and took an extra-strength Tylenol capsule from a bottle her parents had purchased the day before at a Jewel supermarket. Shortly after, her father heard a loud thud and rushed to the bathroom, where he found Mary lying on the floor, unconscious. She was rushed to Alexian Brothers Medical Center, where she was pronounced dead at 9.56 a.m. Initially, doctors believed she had suffered a heart attack. Her death left family and doctors shocked, and it was just the first in a series of tragic, senseless deaths. That same day, 27-year-old Adam Janis was having chest pains and stayed home from work. At 11 a.m., he left his Arlington Heights home to pick up a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol at a nearby jewel store. After he returned home, Adam took several capsules, walked into his bedroom, and collapsed into a coma. Paramedics arrived from Northwest Community Hospital, but failed to resuscitate him. He was pronounced dead at 3.15 p.m. in the hospital's emergency room. 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner lived in Winfield, Illinois, 
She was the mother of an eight-year-old girl named Michelle, and she had just given birth to a second child. Only 30 minutes after Adam Janice was pronounced dead, Michelle returned home from a trip to the grocery store with her mother-in-law. One of the items she had purchased was a bottle of regular strength Tylenol at Frank's Finer Foods, a few blocks from her home. After Mary put her groceries away, she opened the bottle of Tylenol up and proceeded to take a few capsules. Immediately, Mary told her mother-in-law that she felt very sick and went to lie down on the living room sofa. Within minutes, Mary fell into a coma. Paramedics arrived and rushed her to nearby Central DuPage Hospital. She was pronounced dead at 9.03 a.m. the following morning. As the family of Adam Janus gathered in the Janus home to discuss his funeral arrangements, Adam's brother Stanley, who was 25 years old, and Stanley's wife, 19-year-old Teresa, both complained of headaches. A family member told them that there was some Tylenol in the bathroom. So the two of them, Stanley and Teresa, went to the bathroom and took some capsules. When Stanley returned to the living room, he collapsed on the floor. Paramedics were called and they arrived within just a couple of minutes. As they were putting Stanley on a stretcher, Teresa also collapsed. Paramedics rushed the couple to Northwest Community Hospital, where Stanley was pronounced dead at 6.15 p.m. and Teresa died the following day. 31-year-old mother of two, Mary McFarland, had complained of a headache at 6.30 p.m. to a co-worker at the Illinois Bell Phone Center. This was located in the Yorktown Shopping Center in Lombard. It's believed that Mary purchased a bottle of extra-strength Tylenol capsules the day before at a Woolworths store in the same shopping center. Mary suffered periodically from migraines. She transferred some of the capsules into a tin box to take to work in case she got a migraine there. After she returned home from her lunch break, Mary went to the office lady's restroom, walked back into the main office area, and suddenly collapsed, unconscious, on the floor. She was rushed to Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove and pronounced dead at 3.15 a.m. The final victim in the Tylenol murder series was 25-year-old Paula Prince. Paula was a flight attendant with American Airlines. At 8 p.m. on September 29th, Paula arrived at O'Hare International Airport from Las Vegas. She agreed to give a fellow flight attendant a ride into the city. Her friend was scheduled to arrive around the same time on another flight, but the friend's flight was delayed an hour. Paula wasn't feeling well, and she had to fly out the next day, so she left her friend a note. The note read, I'm tired. I don't want to wait for you because your trip is late. Please call me. I have some exciting news. Paula then drove to LaSalle Street in the city. It was just before 9.30 when she parked her car and walked to a Walgreens pharmacy located at North Avenue and Well Street, just around the corner from her home. Paula bought a bottle of extra strength Tylenol and then headed on to her high-rise apartment. After arriving in her apartment, Paula put on a flowery nightgown and walked into her bathroom. She filled a glass with water and took some Tylenol. Paula started putting cold cream on her face. She stopped, walked out into the hallway, and collapsed dead on the floor. Paula's death was determined to have occurred between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. Her body wasn't found until two days later on October 1st. When she didn't show up for work, Paula's sister, who had a key to her apartment, entered 
and found her body. So at this point, because all of this happened in a relatively short period of time, police had no idea that a person or persons had tampered with Tylenol bottles. That was until Dr. Thomas Kemp came into the picture. He was a physician at Northwest Community Hospital in Arlington Heights, where Adam Janus, Stanley Janus, and his wife were all pronounced dead. Dr. Kim was not Adam's attending physician, but was called in as a consultant. He and the attending doctor had no idea what caused a young, healthy man to collapse and die. Then at 5 p.m., Stanley and Teresa Janice arrived at the hospital. A nurse told Dr. Kim that Adam's brother and sister-in-law were there. And I think at first he thought the nurse had mistaken them for Adam's parents, most likely thinking that they were grief-stricken and that had caused some health issues. But the nurse assured him it was Adam's brother and his wife. Dr. Kim knew something serious was happening and he sensed that these deaths were not natural. He called the Cook County Board of Health and the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office to see if anything like this had been detected elsewhere, but there were no similar reports. Dr. Kim then sent a Board of Health representative to the home of Adam Janus to look for carbon monoxide leaks or other obvious causes of death. He also sent paramedics to Adam's home to remove anything ingestible, such as coffee grounds and medication. At this point, Dr. Kim suspected botulism, so he had surviving members of the Janus family hospitalized for observation. One of the paramedics asked Dr. Kim if he knew about Mary Kellerman, the first victim. The paramedic told him that she had taken Tylenol before her death. Dr. Kim asked if it was an overdose, and the paramedic told him that she only took a couple of capsules. But Dr. Kim dismissed a possible link at that time. When the paramedics brought Dr. Kim the items taken from Adam Janice's home, he poured the contents out and searched through them. He came across a Tylenol bottle and noticed that only a few capsules were missing. He smelled them, but there was no odor. He then went through them to make sure another medication wasn't mixed in. Dr. Kim remembered what the paramedic told him about Mary Kellerman, so he asked Adam's surviving family members if any of them had taken Tylenol. Nearly all of them answered yes, but they said only Stanley and Teresa Janice had taken some from Adam's bathroom. The other family members had taken the Tylenol they had brought with them. Then Dr. Kim asked if Adam had taken the Tylenol from his bathroom, and they said yes. Now Dr. Kim was beginning to understand what was happening but still had no idea it was foul play. Dr. Kim asked the paramedics to retrieve the bottle of Tylenol Mary Kellerman had used. An Elk Grove detective had confiscated it at Mary's home on a hunch, and he took it back to the police station, where he left it in a desk drawer. The detective gave it to paramedics to deliver to Dr. Kim for examination. Within 30 minutes of Dr. Kim's request, Mary Kellerman's Tylenol bottle was brought to the hospital and handed to someone from the medical examiner's office. Analysis of the medication would be performed the following day, along with Adam Janice's bottle of Tylenol. Dr. Kim telephoned poison experts in California and Colorado, 
He told them of the four victims who had each taken Tylenol before collapsing into a coma and dying. The Colorado expert quickly ruled out a Tylenol overdose, but thought all four cases sounded like cyanide poisoning. Dr. Kim decided to send blood and urine samples from Stanley and Teresa Janis to the Clinical Biotox Laboratory in Highland Park. He wanted them to be analyzed that night. He asked the lab to look for the presence of cyanide specifically. At 1 a.m., Dr. Kim received a phone call from the lab. The analyst had found high levels of cyanide in Stanley and Teresa's blood. A half hour later, Kim called the head of the lab, Dr. John Ambro, to question the reliability of the test. Dr. Ambro assured him of the accuracy, but agreed to redo it himself the next day and said that he would retest Adam Janice's blood samples as well. But nonetheless, by 2.30 a.m., Dr. Kim was reasonably sure that Adam, Stanley, and Teresa all died from cyanide poisoning. So he called the medical examiner's office and spoke with a representative there. He told the rep that he was confident they died from cyanide poisoning, and he wanted them to analyze the Tylenol capsules and check for cyanide. Dr. Kim had left the hospital to go home and take a shower. At around 9 a.m., he was driving back to the hospital and listening to the radio when he heard that Dr. Robert Stein, Cook County's chief medical examiner, had held a press conference. Stein announced that his office had just discovered cyanide in some extra-strength Tylenol capsules. Stein detailed how someone had tampered with the pain reliever on a broad scale and warned that all use of the product should stop, at least temporarily. An official criminal investigation began, and in short order, six of the Tylenol-related deaths were connected. On September 30th, 1982, James Zagel, director of the Illinois State Police, was driving from Chicago to his home in Springfield. When he heard about the Tylenol deaths on the radio, he immediately called his wife and warned her not to take any of the Tylenol they had in their medicine cabinet. Zagel then contacted Thomas Shump, deputy director of the Illinois State Police's Northern District, to have Shump's best agents start gathering data on the six deaths from the local police departments. Zagel tracked down Illinois' top leaders all in one place at a fundraising dinner at the Pheasant Run Theater, Governor James Thompson, Attorney General Tyrone Fainer. Secretary of State James Edgar, and Senator Charles Percy, whose own daughter Valerie was brutally murdered in 1966, were all at the same dinner. As Attorney General, Tyrone Fainer headed the Tylenol investigation. When Zagel arrived at the fundraising dinner, he learned that Fainer and Governor Thompson were already aware of the deaths. The group agreed to a more official meeting the next morning, Friday, October 1st. After the dinner, Fainer phoned his top assistant, Mort Friedman, in Chicago to bring the FBI into the investigation. However, no federal laws had been broken, so Fainer had Friedman find a way to allow the FBI's involvement. Friedman spent hours researching federal laws until he finally found an obscure minor statute making tampering with drugs a federal misdemeanor. The next day, the FBI assigned 50 agents to the case and provided nationwide resources to the Tylenol investigation. Later that night, September 30th, around 11 p.m., Thomas Shump, 
began contacting the Division of Criminal Investigation agents at their homes, ordering them to collect data from the local police departments for the next two weeks. These agents worked 15-hour days with no time off. Shump telephoned his second-in-command, Edward Sazowski, and the two devised a plan of how the investigation could be coordinated through various police agencies. Later on, after all the data collection was completed, it was determined that there was no connection between the victims, nor was there a motive in these murders. It was very discouraging. On Friday, October 1st, 1982, two meetings took place in the DCI building in Des Plaines. More than 100 investigators were put on the case. Some of them were law enforcement officials who played parts in solving such cases as the John Wayne Gacy and Richard Speck serial murders. These investigators came from Fainer's office, the FDA, the FBI, and the Illinois State Police. Also at the meetings were members of the following police departments, Arlington Heights, Chicago, Elk Grove Village, Elmhurst, Lombard, and Winfield. At Fainer's meeting, Thomas Shump, going on no sleep, gave his briefing. James Zagel told Chicago Tribune reporter William Mullen in 1983, quote, he just got up there and coolly began ticking off the possible motives and areas needing investigation. He discussed the possibilities of someone making a killing in the stock market with Johnson & Johnson falling suddenly on Wall Street because of Tylenol or someone making a quick profit by investing in the safety packaging industry. He brought up the theory that only one of the victims was targeted for death, with the others killed to cover up that murder. He raised the idea that the cyanide might have accidentally been placed in the capsules during the manufacturing process. There was another theory that a disgruntled employee of Johnson & Johnson might be hitting back at the company or that someone else angry with the company might be doing it because of an accident with Johnson & Johnson products. Those at the Fainer meeting concluded that the priority should be to get Tylenol products out of home medicine cabinets and remove them from all store shelves and warehouses. It wasn't an easy decision for law enforcement because they knew that many people would throw away their bottles instead of handing them over to police, therefore throwing away valuable evidence. At the same meeting, representatives of Johnson & Johnson were there and cooperated fully with the investigation. Fainer later recalled in 1983 to the Tribune that, quote, they never balked at anything. Anything we wanted from them, we got. They never raised any objection about the millions they were losing while we discussed confiscating all their Tylenol stocks. In fact, they agreed to collect all the store and warehouse stocks themselves and set up a laboratory to test them for cyanide. Hey folks, we want to introduce you to the game June's Journey. If you haven't played this, you don't know what you're missing, it's so much fun. For you amateur sleuths, it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries. You get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. 
And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door? With DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. Must be 21 and over to order alcohol. Drink responsibly. Alcohol available only in select markets. By October 1st, 1982, the investigation was fully underway. That day, Paula Prince's body was finally discovered by her sister. The medical examiner determined that she too was a Tylenol poisoning victim, making her the seventh victim in the series. Because her death occurred in the Belmont area in the city, the area's police headquarters at Belmont and Western Avenues coordinated the citywide investigation with 25 Belmont detectives assigned to the case. All of the other deaths had occurred in the suburbs. But despite all of the different jurisdictions, everyone shared information back and forth with Shump and his team. The investigator's most significant problem was the little physical evidence they had to work with during the early days of the Tylenol investigation. Police recovered a total of eight poison bottles of Tylenol. Initially, they had five laced with cyanide-filled capsules, and they knew where four of them were purchased. Eventually, they recovered three more bottles that were never opened, but contained poison capsules. Six of the eight bottles had held 80 extra-strength Tylenol capsules. One contained 24 capsules, the eighth bottle was a 50-count Tylenol regular strength container with red and white extra-strength poison capsules inside that had belonged to Mary Lynn Reiner. They had no other physical evidence to work with. And Morph, I think this is a, a place where we need to describe these old-style Tylenol capsules that we're talking about that were tampered with. You know, these capsules were like two little pieces that, I don't know, snapped together, pushed together, but you could pull them apart once you bought a bottle of Tylenol or another product. There were a lot of other products that use capsules and you could replace the contents of the capsules with another ingredient if you wanted to and simply snap the capsules back together. And I think you could do all of this morph without anyone really even knowing that they had been tampered with at all. Yeah, you don't see that in most over-the-counter medication-type products, but I know some supplements 
that you buy at different stores do have those old type of capsules that they're constructed with. But that was only part of the problem because the sealing process on the boxes and bottles of Tylenol back then were not tamper evident. So it was pretty easy to put a bottle back in the box, stick it on a shelf in a store, and someone who would come along and purchase it would never know. And with the supplements that I mentioned, while they themselves use the old capsule format, they still have the tamper-evident packaging that makes it hard to get inside that, that package without a consumer knowing. I think the big thing is, you know, today, as a result of, you know, what happened, almost everything you buy to ingest has some sort of tamper-resistant tamper evident packaging and Tylenol capsules. Like, you know, we talked about, they're no longer made using the refillable capsules. Now they're like what you said, more of a a more solid one piece design, making it extremely difficult to tamper with. But the question facing investigators back in 1982 was had this tampering been done at the factory Or was it done after the product had made it to stores? Thomas Shump's efforts to find the source of the poison moved forward. He organized 35 investigative teams to form his task force. Eight of them were three-person teams, comprised of one FBI agent, one DCI agent, and one suburban detective. The rest were two-person teams, pairing FBI and DCI agents. Investigators believe that one or more persons had poisoned the capsules and delivered them to the Chicago area stores. As time passed, police began to believe that due to the nature of the crime and its aftermath, that only one person was likely involved. They started to believe that the pills were not poisoned during production because the poisoned bottles were produced in two separate facilities in Pennsylvania and Texas and in five different batches. But just in case, two batches, lot numbers MC2880 and 1910MD, were recalled by the manufacturer. They consisted of 264,400 bottles, each containing 50 capsules, and they were distributed everywhere east of the Mississippi and in several states to the west. The 1910MD batch was distributed in Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Investigators also determined that the pills were not tampered with at any of Johnson & Johnson's distribution warehouses. Authorities instituted 24-hour surveillance of the seven victims' homes. They believed the killer would want to make a personal connection with the victims if he or she knew where they lived. But they took it a step further because they also monitored the funerals of each Tylenol victim and set up 24-hour surveillance at the cemeteries for more than a month. Despite all the time put into this surveillance, nothing came from it. Police conducted thousands of interviews throughout the grueling investigation. They started with Johnson & Johnson and compiled a list of disgruntled employees. They used the same process at stores where the poison Tylenol bottles were purchased. The police referred to these stores as hot locations. In total, 10,000 names were entered into the case files from this phase of the investigation alone. 
Police also received tons of phone calls from the public during the first few weeks. Shump did not allow civilian operators to screen the calls. Instead, he assigned two police officers to man the phones at all times. Some calls were people wanting to know what they should do with their bottles of Tylenol. Others called in their theories or who they suspected of being the killer. On Saturday, October 2nd alone, police received 177 leads from the special tip hotline set up for the investigation. The director of the Cook County Psychiatric Institute described the killer as, quote, coming from any walk of life, a compulsive type, and a loner. Immediately after the Chicago deaths, the FDA urged consumers to stop taking Tylenol temporarily. Stores across the U.S. began pulling Tylenol off their shelves. Then Chicago Mayor Jane Byrne banned the sale of Tylenol across the city. Johnson & Johnson announced a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for tampering with the drug. The Tylenol deaths caused nationwide mass hysteria. Customers arrived at their local pharmacies demanding their money back on Tylenol purchases. They showed up at police stations to turn in their bottles. Hospitals were overwhelmed with calls and visits from people complaining of cyanide poisoning symptoms. The killings scared people because the deaths could have happened to anyone. When this happened, I was 11 years old, and so I do remember it fairly well, and I suffered headaches as a kid a lot. I still do. Uh, So I took a lot of Tylenol. And my grandmother, I remember, even though we were in New Jersey, I remember her throwing everything in the garbage. And she was worried and watching the news because of this happening in Chicago. And I'm just a couple years younger than you, Morph. I really don't remember it that well in my own home. I don't remember people reacting to it, my family reacting to it. I do remember seeing it on the news, though. That's that's something that kind of comes back to me, you know, as we're talking about it. I remember it, you know, being on the nightly news and and my parents tuning in, thinking it was a big deal. But I don't remember, and I'm sure this did happen. My mom throwing out all the Tylenol because I'm pretty sure most people around the country threw out their Tylenol. On October 6, 1982, Johnson & Johnson received a hand-printed extortion letter. The letter read, Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million dollars to bank account number 84-49-597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. Now, investigators initially dismissed the letter as a hoax intended to embarrass the businessman connected to that bank account. 
but they changed their tune a little after they interviewed him. The bank account owner said four employees of a defunct travel agency he once owned might have known about the bank account number mentioned in the letter. He was able to come up with the full name of three of them and the first name, Nancy, of the fourth. Other former employees knew Nancy's last name, Richardson, and recalled that her husband, Robert Richardson, was a bit eccentric. Detectives began digging into Robert Richardson's past and discovered he had a history of mental illness and possessed a quick temper. He also was a man with many long-standing grudges. The detectives concluded from handwriting samples that Richardson was the author of the extortion letter. But unfortunately for authorities, the Richardsons had disappeared from their Northside Chicago apartment in early September 1982. So a nationwide hunt for the couple began. Investigators found out that the Richardsons' real names were James and Leanne Lewis, and that James was wanted on mail fraud charges in Kansas City. The Lewises managed to stay under the radar for a few weeks, adequately covering their tracks. People from all over the country claimed to have spotted them. But Lewis enjoyed reading about himself in the press, and he decided to take another bold step. While in New York City, he began sending letters to the Chicago Tribune, proclaiming his innocence. It was a dumb move because the letters showed that he was hiding out in New York City, and it also indicated that he was regularly reading the Tribune. The FBI sent 200 agents to New York City to find Lewis. They put every newsstand in the city selling the Tribune under 24-hour surveillance. They were hoping to catch Lewis as he purchased a copy of the paper, but Lewis was never spotted. Then investigators figured he must be reading the newspapers in a New York library. The agents went to every library in the city with a poster showing Lewis's picture. An employee at the Manhattan Library recognized Lewis as he sat reading a copy of the Tribune. Agents went to the library to arrest Lewis, and he surrendered peacefully. His wife later turned herself in, but James Lewis refused to cooperate and denied any involvement in the Tylenol murders. He even refused to take a polygraph test. James did eventually admit to writing the extortion letter. After his arrest, he gave investigators detailed plans, through drawings, on how the capsules could have been injected with cyanide. But he maintained his innocence and claimed that he was only trying to be a good citizen. In a 1992 interview with the Chicago Tribune, Lewis said, I could tell you how Julius Caesar was killed, but that does not mean I was the killer. On October 22nd, 1982, an informant called police to say he had met a man several years earlier he thought was James Lewis. He said the man had a terrible grudge against the Jewel grocery store chain and had vowed to get revenge on the company in a manner that would make Son of Sam pale by comparison. Investigators were excited by this tip, but their hopes were dashed when they discovered the man was not James Lewis, but a 35-year-old Lombard man with a history of mental illness. But the man did have a grudge against Jewel. It began after the suspect's wife sued the company after employees stopped her in a Jewel store in 1974 on suspicion of shoplifting. She accused the employees of beating her during an interrogation, and she sought $200,000 in damages. The company eventually settled out of court for $8,000, which the suspect complained was unfairly low. 
The police had a dossier that showed not only had this suspect had repeated run-ins with Jewel employees, but had also threatened employees at Frank's finer food stores. Two of those stores had the poison Tylenol. As investigators dug further into the man's history, they learned he had once threatened to kill former President Jimmy Carter in that he admired Lee Harvey Oswald. On October 27th, agents went to the suspect's rented room in Lombard, but he had gone on an out-of-state trip. The landlord let the agents in and allowed them to search his room. During the search, they found one box of Lily gelatin capsules, one empty bottle labeled poison muriatic acid, one partially filled bottle labeled poison copper patina, and one package of extra strength Tylenol. Once the man learned he was a suspect in the Tylenol murders, he went on the run for a few weeks until he became tired of running and surrendered to the FBI on November 29th. He waived extradition and returned to Chicago for interrogation. But after days of intense questioning, agents were convinced he played no part in the killings, and he was released. There were a couple of other suspects, but police also ruled them out before coming back once again to James Lewis as the most promising suspect. James Lewis was ultimately convicted of extortion because of the letter he mailed, and he spent 13 years in prison for his crime. In 1983, he was sentenced to 10 years for six counts of mail fraud in Kansas City, but he's never been charged with the Tylenol murders. After his 1995 release, he moved to Boston. By the first anniversary of the killings, the investigation had cost an estimated $3 million. Agents were still working full-time on the case, but eventually it slowed down. In 2009, Police reignited the investigation. In early 2010, James Lewis and his wife appeared at a closed hearing at the Middlesex Superior Court in Massachusetts. This was to determine whether they had to submit DNA samples per the grand jury subpoena, according to ABC News. The judge ordered them to comply with the subpoena, and both James and Leanna, and both James and Leanne Lewis turned over samples. Around the same time, Police released a drugstore surveillance photo showing Paula Prince as she purchased the lethal bottle of Tylenol. The photo also shows a bearded man they believe was Lewis in the drugstore on the night Paula died. In the photo, he's standing a few feet from Paula, looking in her direction. The FBI also raided the Lewis home as part of an ongoing criminal investigation. Video of the raid showed them exiting the house with several boxes of evidence and a large Apple computer. In 2011, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was briefly looked at as a possible suspect because his initial bombings took place in the Chicago area and his parents had a home in Lombard in 1982. According to ABC News, the FBI requested DNA samples from Kaczynski and he offered a sample on the condition that the government did not move forward with an online auction of his personal effects. But the government went ahead with the auction, so Kaczynski never gave up a sample. He's currently serving a life sentence in the federal Supermax prison in Colorado. And I don't know what the law is exactly, but it it seems to me that Ted Kaczynski, as a convicted killer, his DNA should be able to be entered into any database 
to see any other crimes that he might be connected to. Yeah, Morph, it kind of seems strange to me that they would even need to go to Kaczynski to try to get him to give a sample. It seems like it would just be on file somewhere. I mean, this guy was, you know, such a, a huge get, right? When they finally found him, that part kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. And, and I think the other thing that we haven't talked about is why do they want all of these DNA samples? We didn't talk about DNA at all during the investigation. I don't know what they have, but I think you can make the assumption and it's not a big leap to think, well, they must have something because they're wanting these samples to compare something against. Yeah. Maybe at the very least they have touch DNA from the bottles or, or the capsules. It's got to be something, right? Yeah, it definitely seems like they, they have something that they want to compare that DNA against. In the fall of 2011, author Scott Bartz self-published a book titled The Tylenol Mafia. Scott doesn't believe the bottles were poisoned in stores by a madman. He believes an employee did it at one of the manufacturing plants, either in Colorado or Texas, in the repackaging and distribution channel. Scott Bartz is a pharmaceutical industry insider and whistleblower who had previously worked for several companies owned by Johnson & Johnson from August 1999 until his termination in March 2007. In 2011, Scott was part of a multi-party lawsuit in which he, the United States of America, and 22 states, including Illinois, were plaintiffs in an ongoing lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson subsidiaries, according to Joy Bergman of ChicagoReader.com. Apparently, the suit was not related to the 1982 murders. The lawsuit alleged that the defendants, Johnson & Johnson, defrauded both Medicaid and Medicare through price manipulation and overcharges. Bergman said in her 2011 article, in the course of his regular sales analyst duties, Bartz discovered various pricing errors, brought them to the attention of his superiors, in an attempt to correct the situation. And despite his positive performance reviews and promotions, soon found himself out of a job. In an interview with Bergman, Scott said his findings debunked this hypothesis and point instead to a repackaging facility in the channel of distribution as the location where the tamperings occurred. Scott Bartz has many supporters, including Mary Lynn Reiner's daughter, Michelle Rosen, who was only eight years old when her mother died in 1982. Michelle sought answers in her mother's death for many years. She wrote on her website, TylenolMurders.com, Scott figured out that the only way the killings could make perfect sense was if the madman was an employee in the repackaging or distribution channel. All the retail stores with poison bottles all came from the same point of distribution. But the admission of that truth meant Johnson & Johnson would be liable for all of the deaths. The Tylenol brand would become extinct, and the general public would realize that this crime could literally happen in any food, any time, by an employee. The safety seal was the perfect solution to every consumer's worst fear at this point. But selling it to them and getting them to trust it could only work if the crime happened at the retail stores. A safety seal from tamperings happening from within the factories or warehouses simply sealed it up. In the press, Scott and Michelle have said that Michelle's mother, Mary, had taken poisoned extra-strength Tylenol capsules she received for free 
from Central DuPage Hospital, where she had just given birth before her death. When Mary was home, she poured the rest into her newly bought regular strength Tylenol bottle. If this is true, it means that the capsules Mary took did not come from a store. They came from the hospital. Scott said that police never said her extra strength came from the regular strength Tylenol lot number and that the FBI and Johnson and Johnson never warned the public that regular strength Tylenol might be contaminated. It was always about extra strength. In August, 2010, Scott and Michelle met with Scott Watkins, who in 1982 was a rookie Winfield police officer. He went to the Reiner home to retrieve any tunnel that was there. Scott asked Watkins, quote, You guys must have investigated Central DuPage Hospital as a source. She'd just been in the hospital having a baby. How'd you find out the lot number for that extra strength Tylenol? He shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't know. Not much has happened since then. In regards to the investigation, we mentioned it. James Lewis was never charged in the Tylenol murders, but both Scott Bartz and Michelle Rosen believe in his innocence. While many investigators think that he still is a very viable suspect. And we talked about this earlier, Morph. In 1982, medication bottles were not sealed as they are today. The Tylenol murders forced state, county, and city officials to begin preparing legislation to require seals on over-the-counter drugs. That same year, the FDA issued its first regulations for tamper-resistant packaging of over-the-counter medications. Johnson & Johnson tried to allay public fears by announcing plans that they would triple-seal Tylenol packaging in a box that had glued flaps, plastic around the neck of the bottle, and a foil seal. These are all things now that are pretty standard on all over-the-counter drugs. Johnson & Johnson later pushed for solid caplets, medicinal tablets shaped like a capsule, instead of powder-filled capsules. Laws were also changed as a result of the Tylenol murders. The Federal Anti-Tampering Act was enacted into law, making it a federal offense to maliciously cause or attempt to cause injury or death to any person or injury to any business's reputation by adulterating a food, drug, cosmetic, or other product. And I think we've seen since these Tylenol poisonings that tamper-resistant, tamper-evident packaging has become the mainstream on just about anything that we ingest. But I I know, surprisingly, there are still things that aren't safety-sealed. Ice cream, for example, there were lots of videos going around about people doing this challenge where they open up ice cream and lick it and put the lid back on. It's, it's surprising to me that in this day and age, we can't tamper-proof ice cream. Well, I think we can. I think the technology exists. You know, it is it is somewhat puzzling that not all foods like that are, are tamper-proof. Now, I'll say this. If there's something similar to the Tylenol murders that occurs with ice cream, you can bet your ass that that will change. And I think most ice creams actually do seal their product, but there are some that don't. And not that licking a stranger licking your ice cream is isn't bad enough, but can you imagine if they were injecting poison into the ice cream and putting the lid back on? That's what's really scary. Yeah, I'm not sure what ice cream. I think most of the national brands, I know the brands that I buy, 
they all have some type of plastic ring around that you have to break to get into the ice cream. But I'm sure there are maybe regional brands or smaller brands that, that maybe don't do it. But the one thing that I'll say, Morph, is, and it's kind of sad that this is the case, but it always takes some type of tragedy, it seems like, to bring about these type of changes. We just don't think of them all the time as preventative. It's almost like we're more reactionary when it comes to some of these things. And maybe that's just life. That's just how it goes. Yeah, I think as a society, we're reactive instead of proactive. Yeah, in a lot of instances, I mean, you can look at the airlines, right? Obviously, protocols around flying in an airplane have changed drastically over the years. But for the most part, it's usually been as the result of something really horrible happening. The Tylenol killings also led to copycat murders. The most well-known case involves Stella Nickel, who in June 1986 in Oregon poisoned her husband Bruce Nickel by lacing his Excedrin capsules with cyanide. The motive was $176,000 worth of life insurance policies Stella had purchased for Bruce. 40-year-old Sue Stone, who wasn't related to the Nichols, died from the same poisoning. Stella had put three other poison Excedrin bottles back in the store to make it look like the work of a serial killer as in the Chicago case. Stella was charged in both cases. Because of the Federal Anti-Tampering Act, Stella Nickel was convicted in May 1988 and sentenced to 99 years in prison, where she remains today. Stella's case was the first case where product tampering was the charge. James Zagel, director of the Illinois State Police and one of the principal investigators in the Tylenol murders, was confirmed as a judge for the Northern District of Illinois in the U.S. District Court in 1987. Investigator Thomas Shump passed away in 2013 at the age of 70, and suspect James Lewis still maintains his innocence. So, Morph, as we wrap up this case, hopefully everyone gets the sense of what a really big case it was. I mean, You know, we mentioned the mass hysteria. We mentioned all of that. This was huge. Front page news, headline news on TV every single night for, I don't know how long, but I mean, it really gripped the nation and it put a lot of panic and fear into people. And at the same time, obviously it was not good for Johnson and Johnson. Now, it didn't destroy them, obviously, and it didn't destroy the Tylenol brand. That is still a huge brand. Most people in the country probably have a bottle of Tylenol in their house right now. But I think that also adds to how scary this case really is, right? If you think about it, I know for a fact, I've got a bottle of Tylenol in my cabinet right now, more if you probably have one or something similar. Do you really think much about it when you've got a headache, you got a muscle ache, and you go to get something such as a a Tylenol or an Aleve or a product like that, you pop it in your mouth, you wash it down with some water. I know I don't really think much about it. Yeah, I think that's what's so scary is that I think it's safe to say that millions of people use those products. I mentioned earlier, I frequently suffer from headaches, so I I go through a lot of it. And, And you're right, the last thing you want to think about is putting that pill in your mouth and swallowing it to take care of a headache. And the next thing you know, you're, you're dying on the floor. That's, that's scary. And I think that's why it 
scared so many people back then. Yeah, because it, it was an and remains an innocuous kind of everyday type of activity. I think if there is one positive thing, it's that the industry improved and made it became safer as as a result of that. And maybe because of the safety of the products now today, that's why we don't give it a second thought. And we've mentioned it, you know, James Lewis maintains his innocence. I think a lot of people, probably the majority of the people believe that he had something to do with it. Obviously he was found guilty of the extortion. You know, I go back to his interview, his interrogation. And what really jumped out at me was, you know, Lewis drawing out for investigators how the capsules could have been injected with cyanide. I found that very odd from a man who's being looked at as possibly doing this. Okay. He's maintaining his innocence, but at the same time, he's saying, you know what? This is how it could have happened. And let me draw it out for you. I just found that very strange. Yeah. You have to wonder, is he really thinking of a way that it could have happened? Or is he thumbing his nose at police and saying, this is how he did it. Which we know a lot of people like to do. A lot of criminals, a lot of killers, they derive enjoyment, right? A a high, some type of high from playing around with the cops. Maybe it's the riskiness of it or, you know, whatever it is. I just, that really jumped out at me as so very strange. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you love the show and you haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a five-star rating. Tell your friends. Tell your true crime-loving friends about criminology. That word of mouth really goes a long way. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast or by joining our Facebook discussion group which is Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. All right, Morph, that is it for another episode of Criminology. We had our week off, we're rested up. So we'll be back next week, next Saturday night, with a brand new episode of Criminology for everyone. So until then, for Mike and Morph, we'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.